Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. A podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. But you knew that already. It's why you're here. And in this podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan is joined by the historian of science, Professor Patricia Farah, to discuss what is a glaring, gaping hole in the common understanding of the First World War. Now, this is namely the role that women scientists, doctors, and engineers played in some of the war's greatest scientific developments. From scientists who tested chemical weapons on themselves to find cures, through to surgeons who took whole teams and ambulances to France and Serbia to save lives. The stories in this podcast, they open your eyes to the way in which women risked their lives and helped secure victory in the First World War. I know you're going to find this one absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Apart from anything else, what a great title. A lab of one's own. Well, that's what I think, but a lot of people don't get the reference, and it's referred to as a lab of our own or a lab of her own or something like that. I mean, people don't seem to have heard of Virginia Woolf in the way that I assumed everybody would. <laughs> Never assume anything. Yeah. So was this a glaring hole in the popular understanding and appreciation of the First World War? I don't think it's just a glaring hole in the popular understanding. I think it's a glaring hole in the academics understanding as well. I mean, it's virtually nothing has been written about this group of women because there's been a lot of uh, women especially feminists from the 1970s and since then have written a lot of books about all the women who were working in the war in the munitions factories, driving trains, going down coal mines, all that sort of marvellous stuff. Huge, thousands and thousands and thousands of women. So it's relatively easy to find some information. There's also lots of photos. And then conversely, there's a lot of books about science in the First World War and naturally they're all about men. And there's this very small group of women in the middle who've got completely forgotten by the historians, and nobody's written about them. It's not just the popular understanding, they're they're just absent, and it was really difficult for me to find out information about them. I had never heard of them at all. No, I hadn't, and loads of First World War specialists haven't, and what I really hope, and actually it's already beginning to happen, is that people are going to pick up ends of threads that I've left lying around, and they're going to do more research, and there's already uh, someone 
I know who's found a descendant of one of the scientists that I've written about. And he went to see this woman and she had her aunt's original diaries and memoirs. So this man can now write a proper biography of her based on that. So what I hope is that more things like that are going to happen because there must be attics and wardrobe drawers all all over the country which have got uh, memoirs of these women stashed away in them somewhere. So who were these women and what did they do? The women that I write about, they're scientists and doctors and engineers. Most of the ones I wrote about already had degrees in science. They'd already been at university. So I'll start with a scientist, one of my favourite, Martha Whiteley. She was a research chemist. And before the war started, she was researching into how you synthesise barbiturates. As soon as the war came, like scientists all over Britain, she put that research on one side and dedicated herself to wartime research. Can I ask, can I interrupt you? Yes. Why was she, she, she was able to have that job in, in, even in those sort of patriarchal days? She was very, very unusual in having it. She was one of the first intake of women at Royal Holloway College, which then was an all-women's college. And she didn't come from a particularly privileged background. Um, She won scholarships all the way through. And then after she graduated from Royal Holloway College, she worked for 11 years as a teacher and she did her research for her PhD in her spare time. Not you have a lot of spare time when you're teaching. I mean, she was that dedicated and that committed to doing scientific research. And she did get a job at Imperial College, but until the war women were only allowed to have research jobs. One thing that happened when uh, the war was on and the men were away is that women were allowed to lecture to mixed audiences and before that had been completely banned because it was totally inappropriate for a woman to stand up in front of a mixed audience. So that was one way in which a lot of women were liberated during the war. But this particular woman, Martha Whiteley, um, her uh, boss went away, went away to the war, and she was put in charge of an experimental trench that was dug in the gardens of Imperial College in South Kensington. And she went down there with seven other women. She led the team right through the war, and they were preparing explosives, and they were looking at poisonous gases. So she had one of the first samples of mustard gas that was brought back um, from, from the front, And she has an explosive named after her, which is DW for Dr. Whiteley. That was the code name. And these women experimented on themselves. And this sort of counts all their arms swelling up because they tested the poisons on themselves. And she was a great feminist. She was one of the first women to join the Royal Chemical Society. And in the 1950s, she was still going around lecturing to young women, trying to persuade them to do science. And she showed them the scars on the inside of her elbow. And that was from self-experimentation. And the press had this brilliant headline uh, because she was working on tear gas. She was the woman who made the Germans weep. <laughs> it's quite a way to be remembered, actually. And is it, is it an accident that she was at an academic institution? I mean, would it, would it have been more difficult for them to be in the private sector? And were universities slightly more friendly to having women in, in, in important positions? Well, Imperial College was particularly friendly. Um, all the universities, just uh, like doctors and engineers and everybody else, they only paid the women two-thirds of what, of what the men were paid. And at the end of the war, a special bonus was given to everybody who'd worked during the war, and the women were given a lower bonus than the men. And Imperial College actually made up the difference and gave them the same. So they were very egalitarian. So I have to put in a plug for Imperial College as being quite a good employer. On the other hand, somewhere like the Natural History Museum, there was a woman called Dorothea Bate who worked there. She was a paleontologist. 
And as, again, as the men went away, she did more and more work. She was occupying more and more senior positions, but she couldn't be employed properly. She was always paid on a part-time basis and she was paid piecework. So she was earning less than the men who she was superintending. So what, give me some other examples of the, of the work that these women were doing. Well, one thing in the commemorations that we've had of the war during the last four years have been almost entirely about the Western Front. And in fact, there was a huge amount of activity in Russia and Serbia and Salonika. And right at the beginning of the war, a Scottish suffragist who was also a surgeon uh, raised lots of money from all the suffrage organisations, and she got enough money to equip two full ambulance teams with research laboratories and surgeons and nurses and doctors and medicine and all x-ray equipment, all the stuff that you need. And she went along to the war office and said, I've got these two teams of women. And the war office said, go home, my good woman, and keep still. We don't want women at the front getting in the way. So she went to our allies, Serbia and France, and they very, very sensibly said yes. So the one unit went off to France, and the second unit went off to Serbia. And one of the doctors who was with it has written a memoir. It was absolutely extraordinary. The conditions were atrocious. It was very hot during the summer. It was very cold during the winter. There was absolutely no sanitation. There was malaria. There was typhus. There um, there were epidemics the whole time, and they had to build their hospitals from scratch. There was absolutely nothing there. So these women went out, and they put up tents, they put up buildings, they built electricity generators, did all the x-rays. And then there was one woman in particular uh, called Isabel Emsley, and she had qualified in Edinburgh because it was easier for a woman to qualify in Edinburgh than it was in England. Most English hospitals or training schools wouldn't take women. And, but after she'd graduated as a doctor, she found it very difficult to get a job. And so the war for her represented an opportunity to go and do surgery, which was what she really wanted to do. And surgery was a man's speciality. So she stayed out uh, on the, along the Eastern Front till 1919. And she did a lot of corrective surgery on the local population as well. And then she came back. And then she said in her memoir, she said, what I really wanted to do when I got back was to be a surgeon but I knew that that was no good because that's a male speciality. And then a year later, she got married, so she wasn't allowed to be employed as a doctor because she was married. Did many of these women after the war, having tasted something approaching equality, an opportunity, was the door very much shut in their faces after the war? Well, I think people tried to shut it in their face, but everybody now knew that women were perfectly capable of carrying on the same work as men. And these were extraordinary women anyway. And they tasted what it was like to be independent, to have the same sort of life as a man might have. And they didn't give up. I mean, even Isabel Emsley, who lost her job after she got married, she uh, she managed to find a job as a consultant. It's just that she wasn't paid for it. And she ran children's homes. And then uh, her husband was posted to India during the Second World War and she ran a, a Red Cross outfit out, out in India. So she, like many of the other women, remained very active uh, right throughout her life. So did Martha Whiteley, the woman who was in the experimental trenches at Imperial College. She went on working at Imperial College for the rest of her life. And women were setting up engineering societies. They were doing all sorts of things. Were they angry? You've read, you've gone back and read diaries and memoirs and things, well, letters. Were they angry about the lack of opportunities and the obstacles placed nowhere. They were. What a lot of them said was it was absolutely wonderful 
winning the vote, uh, well, winning the vote for women over 30 who own property and everything else. But um, they got the vote, all women got the vote in 1928. But what they really wanted was professional and financial equality. That was what they were striving to get. And that's what we still don't have. Uh, we're, um, things have improved enormously. But that, that was the real goal. As a Virginia Woolf said in in a room of one's own, that what really mattered to her was having £500 a year and a room of her own. And she also wrote that when she collected her inheritance or she had news of her inheritance uh, round about the same time that women received the vote. And for her, the money was much more important than the vote. Now, she spent most of the war whinging because she couldn't find any servants because all the servants had gone off to work in the munitions factories. And most women didn't have an aunt in Bombay who conveniently fell off a horse. That was how Virginia Woolf got her £500. These women wanted financial independence, but they were prepared to go out and work for it, and they worked extremely hard. Are we able to make a judgment about the most important contributions that these female scientists made to the war? I mean, any any breakthroughs, any things that uh, helped to let shorten the war, for example? Um, they didn't do anything to shorten the war. There was a, an extraordinary military hospital in Endell Street that was run entirely by suffragettes, and they did develop a new kind of bandage, and uh, sort of surgical ointment, which meant that... Um, uh, wounds could be treated far better. I mean, there were lots of sort of small um, advances like that. A lot of women were doing things like research into vitamin preservation, for example, or research into fungi was really important. There was this condition called um, called ropey bread. Apparently, it was a problem preserving bread because if it had a particular kind of mould or fungus, it just went liquid inside. So the, the, things like that, they're not a major breakthrough like, I don't know, discovering the nucleus at the centre of the atom. But on the other hand, uh, collectively, they made an enormous difference to the war. And I, mean, I think in, in particular, the medical discoveries that these women made made a lot of difference to individual patients. Why have they not been remembered? It's hard to find out information about them, although there are 30,000 uh, records of women in the First World War at the Imperial War Museum. Uh, nobody's looked for them. Some of their work was forgotten because it was deliberately forgotten because of the Official Secrets Act. I mean, it was difficult to find out exactly what Martha Whiteley was doing with her explosives. Women are always sort of in, in the back. Nobody writes about them. A few of them have got obituaries, but... Um, Nobody's looked. They're there. I'm the first person to look. Was that was that very exciting? I mean, what, how did you start this journey? And were you surprised by by the volume that you found? Oh, so what happened was I was in the archive at Newnham College at Cambridge, a women's college, and the archivist knew I was interested in science and women, and she showed me this very large book uh, with a hand embroidered linen cover, and it was completely handwritten in black and red lettering. It had a beautiful linen cover with an embroidered crest on the front and it was written in beautiful red and black lettering, hand, hand lettering. And two women had, after, just after the war, they'd collected the names and the activities of 600 women who were associated with Newnham College. And when I opened the book, the first few pages were full of women who were doing scientific things. And quite a few of them had... Um, medals from Serbia, from France, as, as well as from Britain. And I just went through the, through the book, and by the end, it was sort of more sort of, I know, women making the sandwiches for the local Red Cross meeting. But there were 600 women contributing stuff. And when I saw these pages of women scientists at the beginning, I wanted to find out 
more about them. And after I'd found two or three, I became so excited about it that I just put everything else I was doing on one side and decided that that was what I wanted to write about. It's a coincidence I'm talking to you today because my um, cousin is a young female Arctic scientist and she's just written a big uh, blog post about uh, women and STEM subjects and, and, and the importance for her, she felt very orphaned, she felt very lonely and discovering, discovering historical role models, f- female scientists has been very important to her. Do you feel that part of that one front in the battle to get more women involved in in STEM subjects is is emphasising that there's actually a long tradition of it. Yes, and emphasising that there were a lot of women, they, they might not have been Newton or Einstein, but there were huge numbers of women doing very, very important systematic work. I think Rosalind Franklin's quite a good example of that. Ros- Rosalind Franklin is remembered as remembered now as the woman who took a photograph that was stolen by Watson and Crick. I mean, that's the sort of mythology that's grown up surrounding her. And I think she would have been very angry to know that that's how she was remembered. She would like to be remembered as a scientist who happened to be a woman. And she wrote 30 or 40 papers, and her stay in uh, King's College was relatively short. It was a a couple of years. She did all sorts of other research as well. So, yes, I think it's extremely important for women now to realise that there were women doing that sort of work. And there's quite a move with the Athena Swan programme um, to encourage women to go into science, to do sort of things like um, sort of nudge tactics, like making sure there's more photographs of women uh, on the wall. I've been into so many scientific laboratories and the walls are just covered with men. So there's a move to put more women up on the walls, to put women's books on the reading lists, to make sure that there's female chairs at every conference, to make sure that the keynote speakers are women, just to make sure that there are more women doing playing those sort of roles. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and, and putting women back at the centre of uh, our thinking about the First World War. Um, what's, let's remind everyone what the book's called. It's called A Lab of One's Own, Science and Suffrage in the First World War. And it's got a gorgeous cover, which is no credit to me. It's a credit to the publisher, but it's it really is striking. Yes, that's... It's, I, I... it's in the suffrage colours of purple, green and white, and it shows a woman... Uh, arc welding. It's a very, very striking picture. Well, go out and buy it, everybody. Enjoy. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.